Welcome to Experiences of Insight. On today's episode, we are lucky and thankful to have with us Jacob Lee, founder and CEO of Ubuntu Pathways. Jacob brings over two decades of experience to conversations on philanthropy and social entrepreneurship and has actively called for redefining impact, sustainability, and the theory of going to scale in the nonprofit sector. After visiting South Africa to observe the country's historic elections, Jake returned to the Eastern Cape to co-found Mbutu in 1999. He has since developed the organization from its humble beginnings in a broom closet into a world-class institution that supports 2,000 children on individualized pathways out of poverty. Mbutu's 70 employees work across three continents. Mbutu has grown into an internationally recognized model for community development. In 2016, Jacob appeared in Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40, a list of the most influential young people in business. He has served as a member of the Clinton Global Initiative Advisory Committee. He's also been named one of the world's 101 most innovative visionaries at the Decide Now Act Summit and has been recognized by the World Economic Forum as a young global leader. Jake is an Aspen Institute Fellow. Jake has also been a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and is a visiting fellow at the university's new global policy research center, Perry World House. His book, I Am Because You Are, chronicles his journey in South Africa and sets forth a new and bold vision for breaking the cycle of poverty. Without further ado, we bring you Jacob Leaf. Hi, Jacob. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So uh, I'm American by birth, as you can hear from my accent. But uh, when I was about 13 years old, my family moved to the United Kingdom. Uh, one day I was playing uh, soccer in Hyde Park there, and I had come across uh, this march. And it was colorful, and it was turned out to be a free uh, South Africa march. It was about, at the time, it was about keeping the economic embargoes on South Africa to end apartheid, releasing Mandela from jail, and having no connection to that part of the world. Um, my family had never visited that part of the world. I had no family from there, but I was just drawn to this march. And before I know it, I started volunteering. Uh, and then in 1994, they took a group of 15 of us. We represented 15 different countries. We were all 17 down to observe the country's incredible transition from apartheid to democracy. We spent uh, six weeks touring the country, meeting with everyone from your uh, right-wing neo-Nazis all the way through to your Robben Island freedom fighters, people who spent their life in jail with Mandela and so forth. Uh, the story that I always tell that really changed my life happened in Alexandria. Now, Alexandria is a township. It's made up of shacks, as far as you can see, and it sits in the shadows of Santon. Santon looks like Lower Manhattan. It's the economic hub of the continent. Every Fortune 100 company in the world has a, their global headquarters, South African headquarters there. And in its shadow sits Alexandria. And this was originally created to ensure that they could have cleaners and staff to uh, work in these office buildings. So I'm there, I'm 17 years old, and I come across this woman who, um, she was quite large, she was quite old, and we struck a conversation. And she went on to tell me that she had waited 30 hours to cast her ballot, waited in a line for 30 hours. And it just popped out of my mouth. I was 17. I was probably arrogant, over, I thought I knew everything. And I said to her, I don't understand. What do you mean you waited? 
30 hours because it made no sense to me taking one look at this lady. She tapped me on my shoulder and she said, no boy, you don't understand. I've waited 85 years. She walked away and I never saw her again, but it was the first time in my life I ever asked myself what freedom meant, what democracy meant. Um, growing up in the privileged setting of London or in the States where I was before that, I just had access to, I just took this stuff for granted. And it was that day that I said I wanted to become part of what they were calling the new South Africa. Well, I went to bed that night and woke up and I heard a speech that next morning by a law professor from uh, University of Pennsylvania. Her name was Mary Frances Barry, an incredible uh, civil rights activist. And she was working on the new constitution down in South Africa. And I said to myself, ah, I'm going to apply to Penn. That'll be my ticket back to South Africa. So I ended up applying. And a year later, I showed up in Philadelphia and went and found this woman. And this woman wanted nothing to do with a 18-year-old undergrad. She was a law professor, but I bugged her and bugged her and bugged her. And she finally said to me, Jacob, find a job in South Africa. I'll sponsor you to go down there for six months. So uh, we just got an internet in our dorm rooms about a couple weeks before that. And I found a job in South Africa. I brought it to her. She worked with the university. I got my credit and off I went. And I often say I was one of the first people to get scammed on the internet. I got down there, there was no job waiting for me. And I arrived into Cape Town and I didn't know what I was gonna do. I couldn't call this professor to tell her there was no job, this woman would have killed me. And so I got on a train that evening and left Cape Town. I didn't know where I was going. And about 18 hours into this train ride, I struck up a conversation with a guy. Um, he was a school teacher. He was a black man, I'm a white man. At the time I was a kid, I was 19 years old. And he said, why don't I get off the train with him in a place called Port Elizabeth? I said, okay. It's a little industrial uh, port city type of place. People leave, they don't go to. Everyone's trying to escape there. Um, and I followed this guy. I said, why don't we go have a beer in townships? Now, I've been on the train for 18 hours. A cold beer sounded incredible to me. And I followed this guy. Now, this was 1997. So on the surface, my skin color represented everything wrong in the country. But I followed this guy. He said it was a tavern. We pulled up to a shack. And it was a scene out of movies. The doors opened and the music stopped. And I thought, shit, this is the end of Jake. I thought that was it. Everyone's staring at me. And one guy in the corner of the room motioned me over and he said, come sit with me. And uh, he was a school teacher himself. And we spent the evening talking about education. And I told him my situation. And he said, why don't I come work in a school? Now, I had gone down to South Africa to work in small business development. I was not involved in social services, health, or education. But I said, sure, I had nothing else to do. So I said, I'd come work in a school. He said it was one of those, as poor as any in the country. But I said, I needed a place to live. He looked like, at me like I was absolutely crazy. And he said, okay, I guess you can live with me. And that night I moved in with his family. So those six months I spent living in this community that was plagued by extreme poverty and you know, eight people in a little shack room, uh, working in classrooms that had 100 kids plus in a classroom. Um, they framed my views on development. You see, at the time, Mandela was out there telling the youth of the country that apartheid was over and everyone could go to university. It's nice in theory, right? He was also out there asking big philanthropy and everyone was pouring money into this new democracy, the future of the African continent. Everyone's, so you'd have all these big organizations coming in, but they were defining success by how many cups of soup they'd hand out, how many wind-up computers they'd give. And I'd sit there every week watching another organization come through this area we worked in, handing out box libraries, handing out, maybe putting a few computers around and they'd move on. And I'm looking at these kids who, you know, their parents had never been to school. They're been abused. Um, 
and they're living in shacks. And I'm thinking a wind up computer and a cup of soup is not how I got to the University of Pennsylvania. I thought about how much was invested in my life, how much every day was invested. How it was probably harder for me in life to fail than succeed, if you really think about it. And I said to Banks, as I, uh, after six months was coming to an end, I said, why don't we start our own organization? And Banks was such a community leader, the guy I was living with, the teacher. And he thought I was crazy, would never see me again. Well, I went back to Philadelphia. Uh, I held a raffle on my school campus. Back then, they used to give credit cards away on school campuses. He'd sign a little, uh, 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 sign up on the campus. Uh, you get a visor, and then six weeks later, a credit card would show up. It was amazing. So I took eight credit cards out, and... Uh, held a raffle and we started this organization. In the beginning, we said we were going to take grade eight students. These are 14 year old kids. And I didn't want the top kids, the most academically successful kids. All these organizations would always look for those kids. I wanted the kids who lost their parents or had been sexually abused or raped. And we, could we invest in them and get them to university? Well, First few years went by and it was tough, tough work. And I was going back and forth constantly trying to raise money back to South Africa, trying to implement programming. And we realized was grade eight students were, it was too late in the game, to be honest with you. And we started working ourselves backwards. But while doing this, we also realized that if you wanted access to big funding, this was before the word social entrepreneurship was taught in every business school in America. Right? I remember my university advisor saying to me, this is nice, Jake, but what are you really going to do after graduation? You know, now it's the number one industry four-year grads in America go into. Um, back then it wasn't. And everyone was against us. And I kept looking at how do you play the big stages? How do you, you know, get the big grants? And I couldn't figure that out. And I realized you had to design programs that were reaching huge amounts of kids. You had to go to scale. Okay. So we quickly adjusted our programming to be reaching 40,000 children. Now, I wasn't, we weren't manipulating our data. We were ticking boxes. We weren't lying. We weren't, and all of a sudden, our programs were reaching 40,000 vulnerable children, and money was pouring in. Okay, all of a sudden, we were raising nine, 10 million US dollars a year. We were getting to hang out with Bono. We were, all, we were at Davos giving speeches. We were getting awards, but it was all bullshit. You see, we were reaching huge amounts of children, but we weren't actually changing anyone's lives. It was going back to this thing that we said we weren't going to be. We were giving, we were ticking boxes. We'd give a kid a health workshop, which is good. It's not going to change your life. We were putting a Band-Aid on an axe wound. So I remember that, that just sitting there and saying, we have to do something different. We have to change. And we made this conscious decision as an organization that for us, it was no longer going to be about raising money. It was going to be about raising children in their fundamentally different directions. We started parting ways with all of our big grant, our big foundation money, our government funding. We were getting a million dollars plus a year from the U.S. government. We cut, cut all our ties with this. And the idea was, could we start with HIV-positive pregnant mothers? Because in most of the world, parenting begins when a baby's born. But we know it begins in the first trimester. What goes into a woman's body? Is she HIV? Is, will the baby be delivered HIV negative and so forth? We, we decided we'd only work with HIV-positive mothers who are pregnant. We have a 100% success record delivering HIV-negative babies at the right birth weight. We then work with these children every day of their lives. You know, big philanthropists like, or big investors like to say, what's your exit strategy? Anyone who has children knows there's no exit strategy in raising kids. Real sustainability is investing a child every day of their lives. And so we take these kids on a journey. It's deeply individualized. It's not scalable, right? What worked for you, Dave, didn't work for you, Lee. And it's completely different. 
Now, what we do know is that you've got to be there. You have to show love. You have to make sure they're fed. They have a safe space, you know, to go home every night. We work with children 12 hours a day. They still go home every night to a, a home with no roof, to a place where they're being abused. I mean, a, th a third of our girls are raped by the HIV team. So we need to provide this incredible wraparound of surfaces. We like to say we give our kids what children all around the world deserve. And that's absolutely everything every day. And unfortunately, that's the innovation. People are always asking me to come speak on our great innovation, but it's really quite sad because it's not an innovation, it's, what, it's an old recipe. How do you raise children, right? And what's sad is that it's not applied to, in, the, in the development sector, right? I mean, I can ask any of my donors, any of my big hedge fund guys here in, in Wall Street, you know, with their own children, they send to $50,000 a year private schools in Manhattan. But they, ask, they say it's not cost effective for me to spend $3,000 on a child who's been raped living in a shack. That's messed up. And that's the mind shift that we need to get to. We need to invest in disadvantaged children the same way we invest in our children and afford the same dignity. And by doing that, it's how you actually can change someone's life. And so two decades into this journey, we built this sprawling campus in the middle of extreme poverty. And our campus is as fine as any facility you'd find in Manhattan or in Raleigh, where you are, Lee. And it's the idea that access to great education and healthcare should be a child's right. It shouldn't be a privilege. And that's really, I think, what Ubuntu is at its very core. Wow. I, uh, I don't know about you, Lee, but I just have tons of questions. Um, like I was kind of leading into, uh, the story itself is so compelling. And I do really encourage anybody listening to this episode to really pick up Jake's book and hear some more detail about the journey. Um, you know, Jake, I, I want to take a step back. Um, you know, was it the South Africa experience or do your parents have something to contribute to kind of, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting your parents and I, I know they're wonderful individuals. Was there something earlier on in life that kind of, um, kind of, kind of gave you a push or made you think about this? Because it's a very mature way of thinking of of the world and of people and of needs. And in your book, you talk about it's not about arming kids or providing kids with supplies. It's about being with them throughout their journey from birth all the way through adulthood, and that's really what your commitment is. What, what were some of the, the, the points earlier on in your life or maybe later on in your life that kind of really, I know you, you highlighted the interaction with banks um, and uh, kind of, you know, maybe you made some mistakes along the way. What were some of the turning points or pivot points for you? Right. There's a lot there. I mean, you hit one key point about not giving supplies I and mean, we track everything we do for these children, but no dashboard will ever track the amount of hugs we give our children. And that's something which hopefully we can relate to as parents um, or as aunts and uncles or cousins in our own family experiences. Um, growing up, my mother had us reading to blind, going to soup kitchens. I remember kids not wanting to sleep over because they didn't want to have to work at the soup kitchen or help. I remember that stuff, which my brother and I didn't appreciate growing up, definitely had a uh, profound influence on us. Like the word of <coughs> Ubuntu is a, a philosophy, it's a way of life. It's the idea that we exist because of one another, that um, I am because you are, that is, we're defined as human beings by the way we interact with one another. Other. 
Um, the patron of our organization is Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and he always says, um, in, in explaining Ubuntu, is he always says, a person is a person through a person. And I think that that philosophy and that way of life, um, you feel it. So it's the base of our organizational culture. Um, everyone who works for us, we've professionalized the grassroots service delivery model. I say that because in most NGOs or non-profit, organi- <coughs> non-profit organizations on the African continent, the people who work there are well-intentioned but often can't get jobs anywhere else. And we said, no, the money we raise goes into hiring good human beings. I don't need more supplies. I need teachers, coaches, psychologists, nurses. And the people we hire, sure, we try to compensate them properly and on market levels. But at the end of the day, the work was so difficult. And so it's one thing to read and look at a dashboard about child rape. The other is to be on the front lines, having to look a child in the face who's been raped or their family or so forth. And you have to do this for bigger reasons. And that comes back to this idea of Ubuntu. A lot of what we've done has been mistakes. Um, there's no real innovation comes from taking out chances, right? from taking risks. The problem in our sector is we don't talk enough about failure. Um, you go to any conference, whether it's Skoll, whether it's Clinton Initiative, whether it's Davos, if, I always say if everyone's doing half of what they said they were doing in that room, there'd be no poverty left in the world. And we have to talk about how difficult this is, how so much of what doesn't work is actually out of our control. I mean, I'll tell you a story about one young woman who I often use this story, but we worked with her family for, worked with her for 18 years, a child-headed household, lost both her parents to HIV, the young girl, and we got her on track. We got her into a vocational training college, and then um, she was raped at her by two guys at age 19 at um, her university, our college's um, like pub. And I remember her donor saying to me, what was she doing there? I'm like, what were you doing at 19? You know, you were at your university college. It's not her fault. But there's so much that we can't control. And I think one of the hardest lessons for us was understand only that you can only do, only control what you can control, right? There's so much out there. We're surrounded uh, by violence, by gangs, by uh, uh, generational poverty and everything that comes with it. And it's really hard. And we have to be honest with how hard this world, honest to our state, our investors, our, to explain to them, hey, just because you give me doesn't mean we're going to be able to put 50 kids into MIT tomorrow. That's not how it works. You know, we're taking these kids on a journey. Not all of them make it, but we're going to try to improve their lives and we're going to be there every step of the way for them. I think some of the key lessons we've learned um, and these lessons learned come from us creating a culture where it's okay to make mistakes. And we've, and we call it that culture of learning at Ubuntu is what we call it. But I mean, that the earlier you start, the more important for us, it's the first trimester of a pregnant mother. I mean, it makes sense. It's what we do, you know, it's what my wife did, who's a physician here in uh, New York, that, you know, she started when she found out she was pregnant, taking care of herself in a certain way. And we're trying to apply those same standards to, but one of the hardest things I think we had to really learn was a motivated client was key to success. So what do I mean by that? I mean that you would often think that it's the child who doesn't show up that needs us the most or the one that keeps screwing around. The truth is, unless you want to take control of your life, we can't help you. And that's a, that was really tough for me to swallow and to just accept that you need to, I want, we wanted to help those who need, everyone who needed us. You can't. So, so we, when you talk about, when you talk about wanting to help people and you talk about um, how it's personal, not programmatic, and that you, you need to invest in each person, you need to 
um, have a relationship with them and work with them individually sometimes. How do you reconcile that with your desire to do the most good possible? It seems difficult and um, incompatible with scaling. How are you able to do that? Well, we actually, you know, we don't, we don't believe what we do is scalable. And that's raising children is not scalable. It's, it's like you said, it's deeply individualized. So by that, we had to part ways with a lot of the big philanthropy money coming out of Silicon Valley. We had to, um, and what we, we have to raise, not all money's the same, right? So we used to go for all these big grants and they forced us to do things we didn't want to do as an organization. But we're like, oh my God, and people used to judge us by look at the size of how much money you raise, not by what you, we do more today with five and a half million US dollars of unrestricted capital than we did with almost $9 million of highly restricted capital because we can deploy that money in ways that we seem necessary to meet our needs. And if I say to you as a donor, hey, I need to buy a thousand paper clips with your money, wonderful. I, you should have enough confidence that I know how to run my business. Those paper clips will lead me to the results I want to produce. So I think it's the, it, it took us a long time how to learn to say no. And I mean, we, um, we've turned down millions and millions of dollars over the years. So when I say, we don't believe what we're doing is scalable. That's one thing. However, we do believe we have a responsibility to take our model, to take our knowledge and skills and leverage it to help others around the world realize their own vision. So it really landed on this word leverage was fundamentally different than scalable. And we've created something called uh, the Ubuntu Advisory, which we just launched this a few months ago. And it's our, um, this arm of the organization is a consulting arm and we come in um, and help other early stage ventures, family offices, big blue chip fortune 100 companies, help them implement their own visions based on our own values and our core principles. And really what that means about institution building, about going deep into a community, about putting people at the center of their own development, not creating ideas and making an us and them mentality where we come in with well-baked ideas that were designed up at Harvard and you know, based on global best practices, that's important. But unless you incorporate people on the ground, um, it's just not gonna work. And what's frustrating is we pride ourselves on being a grassroots organization. I think earlier in this conversation, I called, I said, we professionalized the grassroots service delivery model. When you say grassroots in our field, it means fiscal inefficiency. It means uh, lack of accountability, if, you know, and so forth. And we're trying to say, no, grassroots bottom-up development is what works. We just need to do it well. I, I have a question. Um, I, I presume that now when you have the unrestricted capital and you can allocate it out to uh, whether it's your campus or um, maybe uh, a little bit to developing your service offering on the consulting side. Um, you know, you might, you, might, you might have a good idea, historically speaking, of what you want to allocate to a child in need. Um, do you have a sense, and, and I thought it was kind of interesting, a point in the book where you talk about almost like we have to have, we have to flip the discussion. It's not about is that an efficient uh, deployment or allocation of capital for people? You know, we should be saying like, it, you know, $5,000, why not up it to $10,000? Is, is there a sense that at some point in time that if you incrementally threw in another couple of thousand dollars per kid, um, that that would yield uh, material benefit to them? Um, 
over the course of a year or throughout school or, you know, what's your thinking on that? Or have you pretty much Absolutely. Your- I mean, think about the questions you ask for your own children, Dave. It's not what's the cheapest health care I can provide my children. It's what's the best health care I could afford. Yeah. That is where we're trying to get people to land in philanthropy saying, what's the best services we can provide these children? Not start from the basis of what's the cheapest. How do right. we bring our costs down to provide this in the cheapest way possible? Yeah. It, it, well, the minute you start at that, 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 that vantage point, you're, you're already losing. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'll tell a story, share a story that is in the book about the pink dress, but it was um, a, a young woman who um, both her parents died of HIV. She was left to care for two younger siblings of hers and she was in her program for, you know, eight years. She was, got her into university first, not just in her family, but her community to go to university. And then I, this, the story I tell is I was walking through the Ubuntu Center and I see her arguing in a heated discussion with her counselor, Fazeka, and I sort of interrupt and I asked what's going on. And Fazeka pulled me aside, her counselor, and said, uh, well, Zaytu is asking us to buy her a pink dress. And I said, for what? She says, for her graduation next week from college, university. And I'm not going to lie, I was taken aback. We probably spent over $100,000 on this young woman's family over the last decade. And now she is the audacity for a pink dress. And Fiseka looked at me. She said, you always say we treat our kids like our, like our own kids. If you had a daughter and I didn't have children at the time, you'd buy her that pink dress, Jake. Well, we bought her that pink dress and it was $30 or $20 in South Africa. It wasn't the cost as such. And to this day, Zaytu talks about that pink dress as the most meaningful thing we ever did for her because she could walk across that stage with her head held up high like every other child graduating. And I think that really speaks to the importance of giving the children everything they need every day. Um, if these kids, if we're going to really break them out of the site, break them out of the poverty, level the playing field, how can they compete with my children? They just can't unless we invest in them in the same way. It's impossible. Sure, some kids will make it, and those kids are amazing, and you see them all around the world, right? Just unbelievable stories. And we have them here in Brooklyn, we have them in South Africa. But the majority of us need support and resources, and you need people who love you, who care for you, and who are there consistently in your life every step of the way. So to full circle back to your question about, yes, we need to invest more in our children. Absolutely. Um, Fortunately, it's hard raising money for one little corner of the world, you know. Right. Let me, um, you know, obviously I come from the corporate world uh, and where when you're a leader, many times you're given that role. And even then you have difficulties sometimes motivating people. And I think my, my feeling is that one reason why you've been so successful is because at the DNA level, you are a leader. Why, what do you think makes a good leader? Be really okay with knowing what you don't know, right? Surround, ask the question, surround yourself with people who are smarter than with you, who have different skill sets. Um, don't be afraid. I see so many people afraid of admitting what they don't know. Um, and I think to me, that was, a, that was a really important part. It was just um, building trust amongst that team. I mean, my, my executive team uh, has been offered jobs at, whether it's the big consulting houses, my CFO at, um, at KPMG, it goes on and on. My team has stayed together. They trust each other. Uh, we're honest with each other. 
and you know empower those around you absolutely work really hard and there's no I set an example right um and uh i think it's well to to, to get good at anything it just takes a lot of time i mean this is not these aren't uh, you know special nuggets of information i think of it you hear this over and over but it's true um i've uh i i'm proud that you know everyone from my uh gardener who takes care of our grounds in south africa to you know, our chief program officer, our manager director has direct access to me. Um, and that it's not such a hierarchy that we've become so big that I'm not, you know, I'm out of touch of what's going on. Um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed about you, Jake, um, and, and just in what little interactions we've had on a personal level is that you tend to trust in other people. And I think, you know, from my own experiences, that's also another sign of good leaders uh, is that they trust in their people and they hold them accountable as well. And they give them that leash to do what they need to do. Um, I'm, I'm really interested because, you know, where Lee and I come from or the stuff that we've been focusing on uh, over the past couple of the years, there's really been an emphasis on um, iterating to the extent that you get feedback on something that you're working on that isn't working out or making minor adjustments to make your product better or your process more efficient or your strategy that much better. It seems like when you mentioned earlier on in the dialogue around pulling back from the, um, the big donors and you kind of, um, you kind of, at that point, not at the time, there was a realization and you had very strong convictions and sticking by your guns and not changing that. Um, would you say that's also, um, you know, realizing your failures is one thing, but also sticking by your being a man, a person of conviction is also uh, uh, a key skill for a leader? Absolutely. Knowing, um, I mean, you started with the trust, so I'll begin with that now. Reiterate a little what I said before. It's it, it is trusting those around you. Um, this is such difficult work what we're doing in the communities dealing with the politics. The um, it's endless. It's endless. And I always tell people it's a terrible business model. It's uh, it's really hard work, and you have to really believe in it. Um, you have to be driven. I mean. I hear a lot of people say, oh, I want to go into the NGO nonprofit world. I want to get into, I want to do social good. It's too hard of work. You have to find your passion. Find a cause that you're really passionate about. Have an experience that really drives you because it's not going to make it otherwise. I mean, it's one step forward, 10 steps back every day. And trying to <coughs> um, talk about our conviction, that came from years and years of... <coughs> of digging our roots deep into one community and building a real institution that's bigger than all of us that has a place in that community has its own history. And that can, you know, today it's dealing with X, Y, and Z services tomorrow. We're positioned to respond to those communities needs and evolve with that community. Um, I look at, I moved around a lot of my life and always living in relatively privileged communities and the cornerstones of these communities were, transparent, highly functioning institutions, whether they're public schools, community centers, churches, synagogues, in every disadvantaged community I've seen, what's lacking there, and this is everywhere in the world, are transparent, robust community institutions. And 
at the end of the day, what we're doing at Ubuntu is building a community institution. And I think the advisory way of leveraging this is helping others around the world. You know, we were offered um, a huge amount of money to go up to uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut to try to open an Ubuntu. We turned it down. I'd rather find a young woman who made it out of there, went to Yale, got her MBA and wants to go back and is driven by something in that community to help her community and help her be the agent of change in that community and build this institution that can blossom from there. And this idea of scale has really done a lot of damage over the last decade in our sector. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Place-based. So, you know, one place-based development is, it has to be the future. We have to return to grassroots development. We have to invest in those um, in, in building community institutions because those institutions will be able to respond to changing communities' needs. In regards to the future, um, what is your feelings on the use and leveraging of social media and digital? Ah, double-edged sword, right? I mean, yes, it's amazing. Our kids have access to the world, right? Uh, we have a coding program going and a young kid who graduates can get a hotspot and, you know, access your business opportunity in Raleigh to build a website for you. That's amazing. But I also see that as a society, we, tr- we can't possibly, as human beings, process the amount of information that is streaming through us. And we've stopped listening to each other. I see it not just in the political um, sphere, but in our, I'm talking about the, the social innovation landscape where there's, I find there's to be less collaboration, actually, less listening to each other and more, um, everyone's trying to position. And because of social media, we're able to, pos- anybody can position anything. Um, and you can throw bombs as soon as you are a little disgruntled, right? You can start a little campaign, a little hate campaign against someone. We've had that against employees we've dismissed, you know, and it's, I don't know, that's so, yeah, of course, it's, it's wonderful. There's no doubt about it. I would, I, I look at some of these, I was just, uh, we just, uh, a foundation hired us to do um, a one week workshop for six of their grantees in East Africa. They flew them down to where we work in South Africa. And these were early stage ventures, three to five years old under a million US dollar budgets. So where we were 15 to 18 years ago. And I was amazed at how much further they were along they were than we, I was, you know, in their thinking and their understanding of the nonprofit landscape. And that's all because of, wasn't through their formal education. It was through their ability to access through social media and and so forth. So that's really, it was was just, it was eye-opening for me to see how far along and how much information they could access from a little uh, slum in Nairobi or a rural village in Rwanda. And that was, that's pretty exciting to see. I don't know if I really answered that well or not. Sorry. (laughs) Um, I had a question for you. Um, it, it seems like, you know, with the rebranding that you did um, uh, recently over the past couple of years, now we have Ubuntu Pathways is the, is the brand that's out there uh, for everybody to uh, familiarize the, themselves with the benefit and the value that you add to the community and to the world through your example and your team's example and their team's work. Um, that's almost in a steady state, if you will. And if you could get incremental capital, as we talked about, you know, to get the best possible anything for the people that, um, you know, whether it's the staff um, incrementally to make their lives better or the, the kids that are going through and coming through the programs. Um, what, what do you see? What's on the horizon for the next two years? Do you, 
really see yourself shifting to accelerate this consulting um, solution offering that your organization, I mean, you guys really, um, from, from what I've read and from what I understand and how the, you talk about this and how you're connected into the, the world and the donor space, it seems like a lot of people could benefit from your help. And not only that, but you seem to be best in class and what you're doing within that space right now. So what's what's on the short-term and long-term horizon? Sure. Or so, yes, we have a lot to offer, there's no doubt. But in, in building the advisory, we cannot cannibalize our existing corporations that are still very dependent on some of our key executive staff and so forth. So that's going to be an interesting uh, journey for us as we grow that without um, hurting our core operations. So up until now, the one missing piece in our cradle to career model has been running our own school. We work with kids every day of their lives until age five, and then at age six, we put them into government schools. Now for every year a child spends in government school, they only gain half a year academically. So every two years they're falling behind a year. A third of our primary school, our elementary school kids last year were abused on school grounds. So we finally said enough was enough and we opened our own primary school this year. Um, that's grades kindergarten one, two, and three. And every year we'll add another grade. So we need to, we need to now build out a full K to 12 uh, school for our kids who are born with us and you know, continue. It is a huge endeavor. Um, we're in the middle, we just got secured financing to break ground and start construction on the, prime, on the new primary school, which will break ground the, uh, next week. Year one of the school exists within our Ubuntu campus, and then by 2020, we'll move um, the full school into this new building. And then in two years' time, we'll need a high school. So it's going to keep us busy. So with, with, with all of that, with um, creating this school, everything that you've done, do you ever have doubt, and how do you deal with that? The yeah, doubt every day. Your mind, yeah. Every day, I wake up and wonder what the hell I'm doing. Uh, two parts. One is, um, could I have picked a harder area? Yes, I probably could have picked a harder area, but it's a pretty difficult area. It's not close. Uh, my wife and children are based in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, so that's a nice 17 to 19 hour commute, which is not easy. Um, I don't have doubt about what we're doing with our children or what I've dedicated my life to. If I, I used to think, because what they drill into us here in America right, is if things don't sustain themselves and live in perpetuity, it's a failure, right? If I walked away and Ubuntu shut down tomorrow, it's not what we're doing. It's not our, you know, we want to build this and keep growing it. I've grown to realize that's okay. Maybe new things would sprout out from it. Maybe what I do know is the thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people that have not just been touched, but whose lives have been fundamentally changed um, and we have 440 young women on HIV drugs. These drugs keep you alive for, as far as we know, 25, 30 years, enough to raise your families. And, tech, and, and medicine's improving. I mean, it's endless. I mean, the amount of, um, and so that, you know, I can sleep well at night with that. And uh, I can, um, I, know, I think this idea of Ubuntu is, a, for me, it's, you know, I'm not a religious person. Um, culturally, I'm Jewish. Uh, but I believe that Ubuntu has become my way of life. This idea that it is our responsibility to give back and to make 
um, our communities, however we define our communities, our um, school communities, our family, our religious communities, however one chooses to define their community, it's our responsibility as human beings to make those communities better and to not just take. And um, that's what I'm trying to do. You know, Jake, um, you're a true inspiration as I, as we joked before, um, you know, I, I really did think that capturing you for a moment in time and letting you speak to us about your view on the organization, the work that you're doing, um, the path forward for you, um, and even the business model going into the, the detail around the business model is truly inspiring. Uh, I wanted to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. And um, I wanted to offer out to our listeners, um, when this gets posted, the first uh, two listeners to respond to this will actually get three copies of Jake's book um, from the Experiences of Insight team. Um, and so, uh, wanted to, uh, thank you and your, and also, uh, Kate on your team as well for working with us to get up to speed, um, on the organization over the past couple of days, uh, very, very helpful, uh, team that you have there. And, uh, we wish you continued success. And, uh, if there's anything we could do in the future to help you get the message out, please let us know. Uh, what we can do to help you and your team. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Lee. Appreciate the time. From Lee Duncan and I, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our episode. As mentioned earlier in the episode, the first two individuals that respond to info at experiencesofinsight.com will receive a copy of Jacob's book. I am because you are. We hope you continue to tune in again. Have a nice day. And thanks again for your time. Bye.